AMU. American Military University is proud to present In Public Safety Matters. Good morning, everybody. My name is Dr. Jared Sadowski. Our guest today is Dr. Christy Bartman. Good morning. Good morning. Great. Well, welcome. We're glad that you're here. Today, we're uh, here to talk about uh, human trafficking, which is a an issue worldwide. It's a $150 billion illicit industry uh, throughout the world. And in particular, we're uh, going to talk about uh, what's going on in, in Ohio. And uh, a lot of people probably aren't aware that Ohio is uh, ranked between fourth and fifth in the uh, in the nation for human trafficking. So we're going to uh, discuss that today. But before we get started, I'd like to share a little bit about uh, Dr. Bartman's uh, background. Dr. Bartman uh, worked for eight years with American uh, Military University, was a program director of uh, legal studies, public administration, and public policy. In addition, uh, Dr. Bartman um, is a, a professor for Ohio State University and also is a educational and nonprofit consultant and is also uh, well-versed in human trafficking and issues in human trafficking that exist in, in Ohio. So as we get started, Ohio is a special interest to me for the last two summers. I had um, participated in Homeland Security operations in the north coast of Ohio in uh, the western basin of, of Lake Erie. And I, I came to find that human trafficking is a much bigger issue than, than I realized in northern Ohio. I found that uh, the corridor of I-75 coming between Detroit and Toledo, as well as uh, the corridor from Cleveland to Toledo, created a lot of, of challenges for law enforcement in terms of human trafficking. And I was really, I was taken back. I was taken back to see how much of an issue actually exists in Ohio in human trafficking. So as we get started, Dr. Barman, can you tell us a little bit more about yourself? I can. Thank you, Jared. One of the things that I'd like to highlight is the new initiative that I'm working on. It's called Eyes Up Appalachia. And within Ohio, human trafficking is governed by coalitions. So they're, they're loosely run out of the um, governor's task force, an office that the governor set up, Governor Kasich set up a number of years ago to oversee the human trafficking efforts at the larger state level. But the human trafficking coalitions are set up in counties and as a conglomerate of several counties or individual counties because human trafficking is community driven. So what human trafficking looks like in Columbus is different than rural Ohio. And unfortunately, within southeast Ohio and, and a few other um, Appalachian counties in the state, there are no coalitions to kind of oversee those efforts, coordinate those efforts, and work with the state to get resources down. So uh, Eyes Up Appalachia is, is something I'm working on to try to help move that along. And we'll talk about that in a little bit, but that's really what I'm focusing on right now. Oh, excellent. It's very important work. So how and when did you develop an interest in the field of human trafficking? I lived up in the Toledo area for a while, and I was teaching at Bowling Green State University. And one of the students had an interest in a, a human trafficking topic, and this was, you know, over a decade ago. And Ohio had just kind of come on the scene as one of the, the top areas, unfortunately, for trafficking. And through an FBI bust for Operation Precious Cargo, Senator Fetter at the time and um, Celia Williamson, who now runs a human trafficking institute uh, at the University of Toledo, started the efforts. And so I reached out to them and they put me in touch with some of the law enforcement task force that had recently been formed. And they came in and talked to my students and I 
just saw the need that, or you know, had an interest in trying to help along uh, with the need that they were identifying because it was really at the beginning. And so over the last decade, I've worked with Senator Fetter and others on human trafficking initiatives as I'd worked those other jobs that you were laying out. And the interest just kind of grew, but the other jobs also grew. So I really wasn't having the time. I'd sat on a subcommittee for law and legislation. I had chaired uh, Senator Fetter's Human Trafficking Awareness Day at the State House for a few years, but decided then last year to leave APUS and really focus on this uh, full time. And so that is... That is where I've come in. But to your uh, comment, the the transportation routes are key. It is a big part of why Ohio is in that you know high level of ranking on the national hotline calls. But also just to kind of give you a little bit of a, a gauge there, just because we're fourth or fifth doesn't necessarily mean we have the fourth or fifth highest human trafficking problem in the United States. Uh, Part of that is because over that last decade, there has been a huge effort, especially northern and central Ohio, in education and awareness of what human trafficking is. And so part of those calls definitely are community members calling in um, with information, with tips. They're not all cases and, and trafficking victims called in. So just, you know, when you see stats and stats for human trafficking are, are kind of if, you know, it's they're hard to come by at this point anyway, um, full, full stats. And so just, you know, when you're looking at that, uh, keep that in mind as well. Interesting. That's a great point. That's a great point. You mentioned uh, Cecilia Williamson. So I actually, uh, I work... Uh, with the um, International Human Trafficking Conference each year. I'll actually be working with them on uh, September 21st, a week away, um, at their annual conference on human trafficking. And I'll be speaking there. So it's, it's interesting that you mentioned her because uh, I've worked with her, the, uh, her and her organization the last couple of years. It's, it's a small world. So how has what you've seen in Ohio in terms of human trafficking relate to, um, to what we were talking about in my experience up there with dealing with the corridors and also I was dealing with um, some of the maritime issues that were going on with um, some of the Lake Erie Islands and some of the potential issues going on in the islands in terms of in terms of human trafficking. How does that relate to your area of Ohio? I think probably the, the most relevant is your your comment on the surprise, your surprise at how how prevalent it was. That is what I am seeing and most people are seeing uh, throughout Ohio. Like I said, the stats, the law enforcement stats are not showing the depth of human trafficking in Ohio. And it is a surprise. You were involved on the ground basis. Uh, Other people that are not necessarily as involved as you were in seeing it, it's hard for them to believe at times. You know, right now there is a, a huge push for anti-human trafficking efforts and people very interested in it and, and looking at it as a uh, something they really want to get behind. But there is a whole group of people that really, they don't see it or they're hearing these myths. They, they think it's only international. It's, it's um, you know, I don't see a whole group of people coming in internationally and, and being trafficked. And I don't... Um, I don't see this this van walk coming up to Walmart and kidnapping girls. A lot of people are hearing those myths that that is what human trafficking is, but that's that is not the case. Uh, and you know, we'll talk a little bit about what actually it does look like in a few minutes. But one of the things that differs in the rural area than what you probably saw in the islands is 
Unfortunately, it looks more like a family or a community trafficking situation. In June, we just had an indictment for an individual down in Scioto County that had eight friends and family members that were recruiting young children. They were going out to the parents who needed drugs. They were offering the drugs to the parents, and the parents in exchange were bringing their children to this man. And those are the type of things, unfortunately, that are more prevalent in the rural communities. And what I it saw a lot was, you know, there was, there was definitely um, a significance in Ohio for the sex trafficking trade over uh, domestic servitude or or, uh, or even forced labor. And and I agree, it's everybody pictures human trafficking as the you know the, the scary kidnapping in the in the van at, at Walmart. But really, it's it's coercion. You mentioned a great example in terms of people being coerced into providing their children to a predator. Um, but also, from what I've seen, is a lot of it's the, the, the young 14, 15-year-old girl that is coming from a, a difficult background, perhaps a broken home, and finds somebody on the Internet or offering to provide the things that, that they're lacking at home, and they end up becoming a statistic in terms of running away and joining with somebody that they think has the best interest in mind, when in fact you know it's that person's intent to to place them into the trafficking trade. Would you agree? A hundred percent, Jared. That That is, you nailed it head on. That is exactly what we see happening, particularly right now with COVID, with the internet being, you know, where people tend to stay these days. It's even more prevalent uh, than it was. But you also mentioned um, runaways uh, and unstable housing, unstable upbringing, individuals within that age group that are, are looking for somebody to make them feel wanted and loved and, and exactly what you said, it goes south pretty quick. But the grooming is, I mean, it's very intentional and they are very good at it. And these girls will be, and, and you're right about the sex trafficking, it's much more prevalent than the labor trafficking right now, uh, at least from what we're seeing. I don't think we've given enough attention to labor trafficking, and, and a lot of the folks in Ohio are trying to do that more so now. But those vulnerabilities are there. And with a number of others, when you're ready, I'll, I'd like to talk a little bit more about those vulnerabilities. Sure, absolutely. And I think it's also important to note that parents really have an important opportunity and, and really, in my opinion, obligation to get to know social media. I think in, in terms of grooming, I've been doing a lot of research on uh, on TikTok and uh, on some of the other popular social media platforms, Snapchat, things like this. And um, I, I found that they really can be a breeding ground for grooming and human trafficking. You know, that as a, a father of two daughters myself, you know, that I'm making myself aware of. And I, and I hope that, um, that other parents, you know, are really engaging with their children in terms of the dangers of the internet. So can you provide more of an overview of your initiative in uh, rural Ohio? What I've uh, done is because there are a lack of coalitions uh, down in that area, I set out to do a study, uh, an Appalachian Regional Commission funded study on exactly what was there uh, and what the gaps were so that we could be able to better fill them. And so as I did that study, it became apparent 
that there were other coalitions in that area that were made up of the same type of individuals and agencies that make up an anti-human trafficking coalition, but they were focused on something else. So an opioid coalition, a suicide prevention coalition, prevention and recovery coalitions, and others that are actually in place that have all those local involvement of law enforcement, the service agencies, mental health, the churches, the courts, the hospitals, all those that come into an anti-human trafficking coalition were already in place in a number of those counties. And so it made more sense to create an initiative to help funnel those resources from the state and other coalitions that are out there doing a really great job and have been doing it for years down to those areas that are just getting started or having one or two individuals that really want to champion it locally. Because the other part of what I found was that within rural Ohio, there is a need for trust. It really is not the right answer for the state to come down and say, here's how you do something. It really needs to come locally. And what I'm finding dealing with uh, working with a number of different coalitions down there that are already in place is that they do have those local individuals that are very interested. It is just a matter of getting down there, working with them. In fact, I was just on a call yesterday and uh, Gallia CPR is going to create a subcommittee of their current coalition that's going to focus on human trafficking. And that is exactly the model that I think is probably the best model for rural counties at this point. And so my initiative is going to not only help identify those individuals and help set them up with state agencies, with hopefully fund some funding for them, help them with their communication strategies and getting the right word out. Because like you said earlier, there's there are a lot of myths out there. And, you know, we need to make sure we counter some of the, the negative social media with the positive and, and the correct social media to really get that going. And part of the other thing that my initiative will do is not only um, education uh, and awareness, but also prevention. So, When we talk about rural Ohio, we're talking Appalachian Ohio, we're talking high poverty, drug use, lack of education opportunities for a lot of the population, uh, lack of broadband. I mean, there's there are a number of vulnerabilities that really kind of coalesce down in that area. And in order to help on the prevention side, we need to get into the schools We need to work with those service agencies that are already serving those vulnerable populations uh, through the homeless shelters, through the food kitchens, pantries and and others, and team up with some efforts. And so that's that is what I plan to do, more of an education awareness within Appalachian, Ohio, and work with the local individuals and and pair them with the resources that we can find. That's very, very commendable and, and important work. Well, let's take a break. We're speaking to our guest, Dr. Christy Barbin. We'll be right back. The public service field offers satisfying ways to make a difference to people and their communities. At American Military University, you'll have the chance to learn great tools and strategies from highly experienced leaders, as well as develop the knowledge to create effective policies. Get the expertise you need to make changes to your community or even the world. Apply now at amuonline.com. Welcome back, everybody. We're speaking to our guest, Dr. Christy Bartman, on human trafficking. And uh, this has definitely been a a very enlightening and uh, important conversation to to have. And I'm truly grateful for the opportunity to to have this discussion. As we continue, what are some of the best ways to address human trafficking um, folks may not be aware of? Okay, thanks, Jared. To build on what we were talking about, you know, as we as we left the last section, um, 
substance abuse, substance use is is one of the highest vulnerabilities. When you talk to the victims and, and you talk to the people that actually work with the victims, you find that probably 80, between 80 and 90 percent uh, have substance abuse issues of some type. And unfortunately, number one, that makes them vulnerable if they have those issues prior to being groomed and recruited. But number two, it's another way for uh, the person, the trafficker that is grooming them to pull them in and keep them indebted to them uh, for the supply of drugs. So it's, it's, a, it's huge. Uh, the runaway population is a big one. Uh, that is one that is very vulnerable. The homeless youth are very vulnerable. You talk to a number of the shelter managers and they talk about the recruitment within the shelters, you know, people coming in and, and looking for individuals within those shelters to traffic. Recent migration or relocation is one, particularly if you talk about labor trafficking. Unstable housing, unstable family situation, mental health concerns are big ones. But rural, in the rural setting, it changes a little bit and becomes a little more based on the geography. The geographical separation is is a hard one. And we talked just a little bit about the online grooming before, and that is so prevalent now. But one of the ways that people were able to see this, and at least alert authorities, were teachers um, in class or counselors. And so they would come in and or they would notice something and they would alert authorities or, or talk to the individuals that, that they needed to bring in uh, the counselors to maybe get a little bit more information. And a lot of that, unfortunately, is the kid, particularly if you talk kids, almost no juvenile will tell you they are being trafficked. That is not a term that they're familiar with, and that is not a concept. They don't see themselves necessarily as a victim. They have a great deal of shame, particularly if it has to do with a family member um, or a community member and or church member. They don't understand what trafficking is. So if you if you ask the question in that, have you been trafficked? Um, they, they'll say no, uh, because sometimes they feel like they did it themselves. They chose to do this. But if you ask the question, have you exchanged sex for anything of value? such as drugs or rent, that is going to elicit a different response. And those are the type of questions and things that we're, we're hoping to train not only the teachers and the counselors on, but the people in emergency rooms, um, talking to some of the different folks that uh, the nurses and, and doctors within the emergency room setting they're, they're trying to figure it out, too. They'll see an individual come in for a stomachache, and then they'll see an individual come in for a, a broken arm, and then they'll see an individual come in for something else. And finally, it's, it's identified that that individual is being trafficked. But those individuals also need to understand what to ask. And sometimes in rural communities, that word hasn't gotten out yet. So the lack of understanding of medical, law enforcement, or court personnel as to exactly what it looks like, because it's not it's not in your face. Um, and it comes in looking at like different things. It comes in looking like sexual abuse. It comes in looking, um, you know, like prostitution uh, or drug use. And so you have to get into it a little more to, to really kind of see. Uh, some of the other vulnerabilities in rural America and rural Ohio, uh, lack of economic opportunities, poverty. The poverty rates, if you overlay a map of poverty, the poverty maps of Appalachian, Ohio, on top of the opioid use in Appalachian, Ohio, on top of the lack of educational opportunities and degree-holding individuals in Appalachian, Ohio, 
it is all right there. It's, it is the they just overlay, unfortunately, so perfectly. All those vulnerabilities are in the highest degrees in Ohio within that area. And so, you know, you'll see the the another vulnerability. So it's the drug abuse. It's the poverty. It's also um, cultural beliefs. So if you have a stronger dependence on the male spouse as the breadwinner and the female uh, spouse in this instance, in this example, is the one staying home. So they start to be completely dependent on that other individual. They may or may not have a car. They may or may not have their own money. There's a lack of adequate services. If, you know, part of that study that I did for ARC, um, I, I looked at mapping the different services and where they were, and there are very few, if any, detox facilities. There are very few, if any, transitional housing facilities, crisis lines. And so the, the transitional housing is so important because once you get somebody out of that situation, it takes years. If they've been trafficked, for basically any length of time, but a lot of the times you'll find that they've been trafficked for years since they were very young. And the psychological impact is huge. And it's a complex trauma that needs not just a 90-day program and put them back into the community. It's so hard to go back into where you came from and not revert right back to the use of drugs, to going back to the same friends. To, you know, So it, it's very difficult, and a lot of those services are not available. There's limited transportation. Talking to some of the folks that work with the individuals uh, that are being trafficked, maybe there's a place in Cleveland, which is across the state, but... They don't have transportation to get there. Or maybe a sexual assault nurse is based in, say, Athens, but they're, which you know is south of Columbus, but they're even further south of that, and the sexual assault nurse only works you know, 9 to 5. And how, how are they going to get there? If they want a sexual assault nurse over 24 hours, they have to go to Columbus, and that's, that's hours of transportation. That's hours of driving, and it's just not available. So that's another big thing. Those are really the, the kind of the biggest vulnerabilities that are there. Uh, And I can tell you more about warning signs as well, if if you want to talk about that. Yes, please. We talked a lot about sex trafficking, so I'll go over that. But then we'll talk a little bit about labor trafficking, too, because I do want to to make sure everybody understands that that is happening. (laughs) Sex trafficking is the most prolific, and it certainly has gotten the most attention. But basically, so if somebody comes into, you know, a counselor's office or into the emergency room or, or somewhere else and appears submissive, nervous, or scared, if the school resource officer is talking to them and they have an inconsistent story about a relationship, particularly a younger girl with older man or a living situation that's kind of sketchy or it keeps changing, doesn't control any identification documents uh, or their own money, is inappropriately dressed for the weather or their age, is in the presence of a controlling male or female. So sometimes I have heard um, from not only emergency room personnel, but also people in in nail salons and beauty parlors uh, that'll say... um, this man brought this woman in, and he did all the talking. Uh, she didn't. She didn't really speak, and they wouldn't leave him alone. Like in an emergency room situation, a lot of the time the nurses are, are skilled at trying to separate <laughs> that uh, individual so that they can actually ask some questions. But the controlling individual, it doesn't always have to be a male. It can definitely be a female. Uh, we've seen it down in Southern Ohio. We've seen it across the United States where females are used by the trafficker to recruit other females. 
unfortunately, that is not unusual. Uh, signs of mental, physical, or emotional abuse, um, acting out. A lot of the time, school counselors, this will come up, you know, there. There's a behavior that isn't in itself indicative of being trafficked. But when you ask the questions, you start to ask, why are you acting out? But, but you know, what circumstances make you feel this way? You know, something to approach it in a different way. And a lot of the time you'll get a better answer. They're not able to come and go when they want, uh, in possession of multiple key cards, prepaid sales, things like that. So those are some of the warning signals for tra- sex trafficking. But labor trafficking, we had a big case in Ohio um, that was a, a big task force FBI bust called the Trillium Egg Farm case. And this was in Lima, Ohio, another rural farming area. And so the, an individual that was providing labor for this egg farm had gone to Guatemala and recruited individuals, young men, um, to come to the United States. And the promise was they would get a better education, they would get money, they could send it back. But they took their parents' deeds to their parents' property for that. And then the individuals got over here. They weren't given their documents. They were only on a specific visa. And if they violated, then they were threatened. So if you violate this visa, then you're illegal. Um, you know, you, you'll be arrested. You'll be deported. Your, your family, uh, they, they threatened the family. These individuals threatened their, the individual's families back home, not only to take their the house, but physical threats as well. And these individuals, this was men in these boys and men in this situation, weren't allowed to to travel on their own. They always traveled in groups. They were always ushered around. They lived in squalor. It was it, the housing had, had no electricity. I, I'm not. I can't remember. If, I don't believe it had plumbing either. They worked crazy long hours, and it was. I mean, it was unfortunately just a stereotypical labor trafficking situation. But some of the vulnerabilities that that come out of a labor trafficking situation. The individual appears to live where employed. They're transported in a group by an employer. Their movement is severely restricted. They don't control their identification documents, and that's a big one here. They earn below minimum wage. They're indebted to their employer, so they're brought over, and then all the documents are taken and say, oh, yeah, by the way, you owe me $20,000. You have to work it off uh, or something like that. There's often signs of physical abuse, isolation, malnutrition, and poor conditions where they are. Uh, And it's not only farm, labor, agriculture, but it's also uh, domestic service. So bringing in somebody to work in the house long hours and not providing adequate pay and adequate time and and everything else. Hmm. It's a a sad situation, but it's it's so important that the public becomes aware of of these warning signs, of these vulnerabilities and and indicators. Those are some some great points. uh, So in terms of victims, once a victim's identified, what are some of the needs of human trafficking victims? You had mentioned that it's very difficult to get out of that life, but um, what are what are some of the needs, and how can those needs be met? Oh, it's so hard, and uh, I, I've learned a lot, Jared. I, I got to say, you know, when I came into this, coming specifically out of the law and policy side, I, um, I'm like, well, okay, we'll we'll fix this. We'll <laughs> we'll um, we'll find these individuals, and we'll get them into the right programs and they'll want to come out of here and, and have a better life. And I unfortunately was wrong, was so wrong. It is so not that easy. And it it is so gray. It is not black and white at all. Right now, when you talk to individuals that are direct service providers, which I am not, 
they will tell you that it takes a number of different times to touch this individual and be there for this individual and develop trust from this individual to get them out of that life. Particularly, so we'll use sex trafficking as an example. If somebody is is on the street prostituting, chances are good if you ask the right questions, they are being coerced. As you said, fraud, force, or coercion are are the elements that that you need to to show uh, for human trafficking for an adult victim. And you'll find, in fact, we have what's called a catch court in Columbus, Ohio, C-A-T-C-H, change actions to change habits. And the judge there, Judge Paul Herbert, about 10 years ago, again, this all kind of started then, started to see the same people come through his court, through the muni court there that he uh, was a judge. And he started to identify them as victims uh, instead of criminals. And so he developed this program. And what he, you know, what he found and what others find is that they are being coerced. And so if you see somebody, you know, if you're working with somebody on the street, maybe your first attempt is to provide them clean needles or, you know, needle exchange or um, naloxone or something like that. But slowly but surely, as you earn the trust, help uh, be out there for them, they'll start asking hopefully for other resources and you can always make sure those are provided you know available you know can we get you into a program can we get you you know it's but you're walking you're walking that walk with them you're not rescuing them that's i guess that's one of the things that right now the philosophies have have changed and and rescue is is not the term uh used anymore it's it's more walking along with them to provide the opportunities for that individual to make a decision to get help. And once they do make that decision, you know, kind of back to your original question, the things they need help with, legal services. A lot of the time they have done crimes as a result of this trafficking and they need to be addressed, but possibly in a different manner, you know, noting that they were a victim or they were coerced into this. So they need legal help. They need possibly to get their license back. They've probably lost their license along the way. They've had evictions along the way. So as you're trying to find housing for these individuals, along with all the other vulnerable populations, unfortunately, that that are, you know, are looking for housing right now, there's not enough. A, there's not affordable. B, it's not in the right places. C. So, and part of what this group needs is that transitional housing. So they need they need an emergency crisis set up, and then they need the transitional housing, which could be up to a two-year, you know, around a two-year period where that, tr- that transitional housing provides all the wraparound services, like um, they bring in the mental health counseling, they bring in the employment uh, counseling. So if you were trafficked since you were a younger child or even a teenager, you don't know how to balance a checkbook. You don't know exactly what good nutrition looks like. You don't know how to write a resume and do a job interview. Those are not things you know. When you bring those that all-encompassing services in around that transitional housing, you're there for that individual. And it's hard because that's it's not like everybody is saying, oh, great, you know, this is this is really helpful. No, they, they may come in and out of there two or three or more times uh, as they relapse or something happens and they don't want to be there. They just decide that is not the way they're going to go. But all those services have to be available. Alcohol, you know, AA, uh, detox type facilities and offerings help with children. A lot of the times they have lost their children if it's a female and she has a child. And so the the children are in the system somewhere, in the welfare system. So getting clean 
and getting those children back is is many times uh, part of what uh, they're doing. And then to transition out into living independently and working independently um, is another uh, is is part of that whole support network. Well, this is definitely an an enlightening discussion. You know, I've definitely taken away a lot. You know that uh, that has that has really helped me in, in gaining a deeper understanding of human trafficking. And I am really grateful for your time and for sharing your your expertise and um, and your experience in this very important field. Are there any uh, remaining thoughts that uh, you wish to share with us? One of the things that this human trafficking ends up looking like is you know substance abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, intimidation emotional abuse, those are the things that, that are going to be seen first. And I guess that probably I would just like to leave, just make sure if, you know, if you start to see those type of things that, that you reach out to uh, the individuals in, in your area that um, handle human trafficking. And if you need additional resources, uh, make sure you reach out and that they're there. We have a national human hotline. It's 888-3737-888. And uh, there's also a uh, text, be free, B-E-F-R-E-E, on the phone to reach that national human trafficking hotline. And they will connect with local resources. So that is, um, that's definitely out there and available. Those are really the the things. I, I appreciate the efforts that I've seen and the interest that I've seen and, and your um, interviewing me. Thank you. Uh, the compassion that's out there, the caring and concern. And I think this is, we're right at the point where we are at a spot where we can really do a lot with education and awareness to dispel a lot of the myths out there about human trafficking and educate people on what it really looks like and how it really happens and how grooming really happens, like you said earlier in the interview. Those are the type of things that I, I really would like to, to get out there and um, and make known. Well, thank you for, for sharing those resources as well. Those are great points. Well, I want to thank our guest, Dr. Christy Bartman. And I really appreciate your time today. Thank you. Thank you, Jared. For more information about our university, visit us at amuonline.com. Thank you for listening. AMU, American Military University.